Stanford University. Again, putting in the anterior abdominal wall and indicating the back of the individual and showing the iliac crest, the anterior superior iliac spine, the anterior inferior iliac spine, the superior ramus of the pubis, and the pubic tubercle, and then putting in just here the acetabulum. We will indicate here the position of the xiphoid process projecting down into the anterior abdominal wall, and will indicate the costal margin and the costal cartilages in this manner. We can also put in at the back here the lumbar fascia coming round from the lumbar vertebrae. Now, the transversus abdominis arises from the inner aspect of the lower six ribs interdigitating with the diaphragm. So we see the muscle fibers emerging from the deep surface of these ribs. Notice that the fibers are running transversely around the abdominal wall, the transversus abdominis. And the lower fibers are coming off the uh, lumbar fascia and they're going to be attached to the inner lip of the iliac crest. And we mustn't forget to put in again the inguinal ligament extending from the anterior superiorx spine down to the pubic tubercle. So the fibers will come forwards. And as they pass forwards up here, they're passing deep to the rectus abdominis. And as we get lower down, the fibers are now going to give rise to the aponeurosis. And the aponeurosis comes right forward to the midline and is attached to this uh, linear alba, which extends from the xiphoid process down to the symphysis pubis, as described previously. And the lower fibers arise from the inner lip of the iliac crest and about a lateral third only of the inguinal ligament. And these lower fibers arch over in this way and join uh, the conjoint tendon, uh, which is the, the combined tendon of the internal oblique and the transverse abdominis. And this conjoint tendon passes down to be attached to the pubic crest. These lower fibers of the transversus abdominis are arching up uh, in this way and then coming down to join this conjoint tendon. Now what about higher up? We've shown here the fibers of the transverse abdominis and of course the aponeurosis begins and goes across to the uh, linear alba. So we complete all this. What is the relation of these uh, aponeurotic fibers to the rectus abdominis? They're passing behind the rectus abdominis until we get down to the level of the region of the anterior superiorx iliac spine and down in this region the fibers start passing in front of the uh, rectus abdominis. So then we have completed uh, the transversus abdominis. Notice that the fibers are coming transversely across. The upper fibers arise from the lower uh, six ribs and the lower fibers are rising from the inner lip of the iliac crest but only about the lateral third of the inguinal ligament. Notice how the lowest fibers arch down to join the conjoint tendon. Remember that the upper part of the aponeurosis passes behind the rectus abdominis, and this arrangement persists until we get to about the level of the anterior superior spine, and then it passes in front of the rectus abdominis. Now we can compare the internal oblique with the transversus abdominis. Notice how the fibers of the internal oblique arise from the lateral half or more of the inguinal ligament, whereas the fibers of the transverse abdominis arise only from about the lateral third or less of the inguinal ligament. Notice how the fibers of the internal oblique arch up and down and join the conjoint tendon. Notice how the fibers of the transverse abdominis do the same thing and join the conjoint tendon. Notice how the aponeurosis, the internal oblique, splits at the lateral margin of the rectus abdominis. One part passing posterior and one part passing superficial to the rectus abdominis until we reach the level of the anterior superior iliac spine where the whole aponeurosis passes in front of the rectus abdominis. 
Here, the transverse abdominis aponeurosis passes deep to the rectus abdominis until we reach the level of the anterior superior iliac spine and it passes superficial to the rectus abdominis. Notice how the transverse abdominis is attached to the lumbar vertebrae by the lumbar fascia in exactly the same way is the internal oblique. We have now considered the external oblique, the internal oblique and the transverse abdominis muscles. And we must remember that their nerve supply is from the lower six thoracic nerves and the first lumbar nerves. And that these muscles are strong and that they uh, can be used to pull down the ribs in forced expiration. They can be used to laterally flex the vertebral column and flex the vertebral column and their tone is used to support the abdominal viscera. Uh, when they contract with the diaphragm descending and the glottis closed, they are used to uh, expel contents from the abdominal cavity in parturition, defecation and micturition. Now I'd like to consider uh, the rectus abdominis muscle. Let us look at the abdomen from the front and I'll put in the lateral margin in this manner and indicate the costal margin and the xiphoid process, uh, the umbilicus and the region of the inguinal ligament. Now down here we have the symphysis pubis in the middle line and the pubic crest on either side. Coming down from the xiphoid process, we have this thick fibrous band known as the linear alba. And you remember the linear alba was the fibrous structure into which were inserted the aponeuroses uh, of the abdominal muscles. Now I purposely exaggerated the width of the linear alba here because it is wider above the umbilicus and it narrows down and of course includes uh, the fibrous scar of the umbilicus and then comes down and narrows right down uh, towards the symphysis pubis. This is why paraumbilical hernia tend to occur uh, above the umbilicus rather than below the umbilicus. Now the rectus abdominis arises by two heads. A, an aphneurotic head from the front of the symphysis pubis and a muscular head from the pubic crest. And the two heads come together and the muscle passes up in its rectus sheath up along the side of the linear alba in this fashion. And it is inserted by three slips into the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh costal cartilages. So it arises by two heads and is inserted by three slips up here. Now we notice that the muscles muscle up in this region is uh, segmental because there are fibrous segments that run through the substance of the muscle. And it's important to the surgeon to remember that these fibrous intersections, as they're called, are attached to the anterior wall of the rectus sheath. There's usually one up here just close to the costal margin, one about halfway between the xiphoid and the umbilicus, and one in this region. They go through the muscle but they're attached to the anterior wall of the rectus sheath. They are not attached to the posterior wall of the rectus sheath. Now we saw in our previous diagrams how the internal oblique muscle passes across the anterolateral abdominal wall and how the aponeurosis at the lateral border of the rectus splits into an anterior and a posterior layer. The posterior layer goes behind and the anterior layer goes in front. And this arrangement persists until we get to the region of the anterior superior iliac spine level. And at this point, the aponeurosis of the internal oblique ceases to split, and there it passes in front and comes down as the conjoint tendon in front of the lower part of the rectus abdominis. In the same way the transverse abdominis comes across, the aponeurosis goes behind the upper part of the rectus uh, muscle. At the level of the anterior superior iliac spine it passes in front of the rectus muscle and joins the conjoint tendon along with the internal oblique. Now there's another muscle down here, a small muscle known as the pyramidalis. This arises from the front of the body of the pubis and passes upwards and is inserted into the linear alba. It lies in front of the rectus abdominis and its function 
is to uh, tense the linear elbow. It is supplied uh, by the uh, 12th thoracic uh, nerve. Now, what is the nerve supply to this important muscle? Well, we saw earlier on how the uh, intercostal nerves from T7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 came round and supplied the skin and to form dermatomes lying in this direction. You remember T10 supplied the dermatome coming down to and including the umbilicus. Now these nerves run between the layers of the muscles of the anterior abdominal wall. And when they reach the posterior wall of the rectus sheath, they pierce it and supply the rectus abdominis before coming through and becoming cutaneous. So the rectus abdominis is supplied by the lower six thoracic nerves and the pyramidalis is supplied by the subcostal nerve. Now, to fully understand the rectus sheath, I think it would be helpful uh, to make a series of sections, cross sections, through the rectus sheath and the rectus abdominis at different levels. We'll make a section here, uh, where the insertion uh, is situated. We'll make a section down here, and we'll make a section down here, at the level below the anterior superior iliac spine, and even make a section down here, which some people don't understand how they, they don't understand how this muscle arises and how the aponeuroses are related uh, to the muscle in that region. So I'll go across now over here, and uh, we'll see how these uh, sections uh, are arranged. First of all, we'll put in uh, a section through the rectus abdominis here this level. We'll indicate the cartilages uh, here, 5, 6, and 7 costal cartilages where this muscle is inserted. We can indicate the intercostal muscles lying between these uh, cartilages, and we can indicate the insertion of the aponeurosis of the external oblique in this region, and we can even put in, just for completeness, the pectoralis major muscle. So the rectus sheath at the point of insertion of the rectus abdominis is made up as follows. It has a posterior wall formed by the 5th, 6th, and 7th costal cartilages with the intercostal muscles. It has an anterior wall formed by the aponeurosis, the external oblique, and attached in front of that is the pectoralis major muscle. Now I think we should take a section at this level above the umbilicus. We take a section through the rectus abdominis. And we bring in the aponeurosis of the external oblique. And we insert it in the midline into the linear elbow. So it passes anterior to the rectus abdominis. Then we take the internal oblique aponeurosis, and when it approaches the lateral margin of the rectus abdominis, it splits. One part passing in front and fusing with the linear elbow, and the other part passing behind and fusing with the linear elbow. And then we take the aponeurosis of the transverse abdominis, and this, on reaching the lateral margin of the rectus abdominis, passes behind the rectus abdominis and fuses uh, with the linear elbow. Now we can indicate, and I'll do this in, in an interrupted, as an interrupted line, the position of the fascia transversalis, and then I will show the extraperitoneal fat in this manner, and finally the peritoneum coming across and lying behind. Now this lateral margin of the rectus is referred to as the linear seminularis. And you can see the important division here of the aponeurosis of the internal oblique. One part passes in front, and of course in life, these two layers are fused. One part passes behind, and of course in life, these two layers are fused. So it is a, a very compact, thick-walled sheath for the rectus abdominis. And don't forget the nerve supply is coming in in this fashion and piercing the posterior wall of the rectus sheath, coming through and dividing into branches which become cutaneous. And also 
in this region is the superior epigastric artery coming down behind the rectus abdominis. Now let us take a section below the level of the anterior superior iliac spine in this region. We make our section across the rectus abdominis muscle. We draw in here the aponeurosis of the external oblique passing in front and coming across to the midline and being attached to the linear alba. We bring across the aponeurosis of the internal oblique and we're at the level, below the level of the anterior superiorialic spine and everything passes in front. It ceases to split and it passes in front of the rectus abdominis and fuses with the linear alba. We bring the aponeurosis of the transverse abdominis and this passes in front and fuses. So that the rectus sheath, the anterior wall, is thickened in this region. But you notice that the, the aponeuroses do not pass behind the rectus abdominis. All we have here is the fascia transversalis and then the extraperitoneal fat and the peritoneum. So there comes a point then where this aponeurosis of the internal oblique ceases to split and this lies at the level of the anterior superiorialic spine. Below that level it, everything passes in front and this forms a lower margin called the arcuate line. The lower margin of this posterior lamina of the aponeurosis of the internal oblique. Now let's come down to the lowest point, the part in front of the pubic symphysis where the rectus abdominis is arising. We can indicate the position of the pubic bone and the pubic symphysis, something like that. We can put in the origin of the muscle from the front of the bone in that fashion. We can show the combined insertions of the aponeurosis, the internal oblique and the transverse abdominis as the conjoint tendon and this will be coming in like this. And we can show in front of that the aponeurosis of the external oblique. And this is the point where the linear alba is attached as well. So there's the rectus sheath then, having a bony posterior wall at the level of the origin, having a very weak posterior wall in this region, below the level of the anterior superiorx spine, having an aponeurotic posterior wall and an aponeurotic anterior wall at this level and at its insertion having an aponeurotic anterior wall and uh, costal cartilages and intercostal muscles as the posterior wall. Now for sake of completion we should put in here the inferior epigastric artery rising from the external iliac and passing up into the rectus sheath. And we can again show the, the, the uh, uh, the nerve supply to this muscle coming in, coming through and dividing up in that way. So the rectus abdominis is a strong muscle which is attached to the pubis and is inserted into the thoracic cage. It can be used to pull down the thoracic cage and the accessory muscle of expiration or it can be used to flex the vertebral column uh, when you don't use the shoulders. In other words, when a patient is lying supine and raises the shoulders without using the uh, arms, he will flex his vertebral column by contracting his rectus abdominis. We have now considered the musculature of the anterior abdominal wall and let us now turn to the structures that lie within this. And we'll consider this by looking at a sagittal section of the, through the abdomen. Now I'm going to put in the peritoneum to begin with. The peritoneum lining the undersurface of the diaphragm arches up in this fashion, comes down lining the anterior abdominal wall and then in the region of the symphysis pubis it passes downwards and backwards to go into the pelvis in this manner. Now I think it's interesting to consider the nerve supply to this peritoneal cavity. This is the parietal per peritoneum. On the undersurface of the center of the diaphragm it will be supplied by the phrenic nerve. At the periphery of the diaphragm, it will be supplied by the lower six thoracic nerves. On the posterior surface of the anterior abdominal wall, it will be supplied by the lower six thoracic nerves. 
and down in the region just above the symphysis pubis it will be supplied by the first lumbar nerve. On the posterior abdominal wall it will be supplied by branches from the lumbar plexus and of course down in the pelvis it will be supplied by the lumbar and sacral plexuses. This is the parietal peritoneum. Now outside the parietal peritoneum we have extraperitoneal fat and I'll just indicate it in this manner all the way around. And then outside that again, we have a fascial envelope. And the fascia will be named according to the muscle upon which it lies. So we have the diaphragmatic fascia lying on the undersurface of the diaphragm. When it comes down here, it lies on the posterior surface of the transverse abdominis. So we call this the transversalis fascia. When it comes down into the pelvis, it probably covers over the obturator internus. So we call it the obturator internus fascia. Over the levator ani, we call it the levator ani fascia up on the posterior abdominal wall where it covers the quadratus lumborum. It'll call, we call the quadratus lumborum fascia and the psoas fascia. And so we complete the envelope as a complete fascial envelope. Outside this again will be the muscles and I don't think we need uh, put those in at, at this stage. Let us now move over to a diagram of a longitudinal section through the anterior abdominal wall which will include these layers and will also include the rectus sheath. So we'll put in the skin of the anterior abdominal wall and we'll indicate the position of the umbilicus by that depression. Underneath the skin we'll put in the superficial fascia. The fascia of camper being the fatty layer and being superficial. Underneath that we'll just indicate the beginnings of the fascia of scarpa, the membranous layer of the superficial fascia, remembering that this fades out as it passes up towards the thorax. And then behind that, in the midline, we'll put in this strong uh, fibrous structure. We'll just indicate its position, the linear elbow, because we're going to make this uh, a sagittal section to begin with and then move over slightly so that it becomes a parasagittal section. So let us then move over from the midline towards the rectus sheath, made a parasagittal section. So we move out, uh, rub out uh, the linear alba. Now we'll put in uh, the rectus abdominis muscle. We're just to one side of the midline. And we'll indicate it as a brown solid structure coming down like that. Now, what, is the re what are the relationships of the aponeuroses of the various muscles to this uh, rectus abdominis? Well, we saw how the aponeurosis, the external oblique, lies in front. All the way down. Then, behind that, we found the aponeurosis of the internal oblique comes down. Now we'll consider the posterior layer of the aponeurosis of the internal oblique. And this passes down behind the rectus abdominis until it reaches the level of the anterior superior iliac spine and there it passes forwards and fuses with the aponeurosis of the external oblique. So you can see how there's one layer of the aponeurosis of the internal oblique in front and one layer behind and at the level of the anterior superior iliac spine, the two layers come together and fuse with the external oblique. This lower margin here is referred to as the arcuate line. Now behind that again, we have the aponeurosis of the transversus abdominis. And this passes down, and when it reaches the level of the anterior superior iliac spine, it passes forwards and fuses with the internal oblique. And so here we have the conjoint tendon going down to be attached to the pubic crest and the most medial part of the pectineal line. Behind this, again, we must indicate the fascia transversalis. And we'll do it in this fashion by having an interrupted line. And you notice that it follows down and is the only structure that forms the posterior wall, the sheath, in this region, apart from the extraperitoneal fat and the peritoneum. So we can put the extraperitoneal fat in coming down and then we can put in the peritoneum coming down 
And I think for sake of completion, it will be interesting to bring down the superior epigastric artery in the rectus sheath behind the rectus abdominis, and it's supplying the rectus abdominis, and then we'll bring up the inferior epigastric artery, a branch of the external iliac artery, and this passes in front of the arcuate line and passes up behind the rectus sheath in that fashion. To be absolutely correct, we should indicate here the pyramidalis muscle lying in front of the lower part of the uh, rectus abdominis. It is a common procedure to pass a trocar and cannula through the anterior abdominal wall to obtain a specimen of peritoneal fluid as a diagnostic procedure or to drain off some, a collection of peritoneal fluid. Now this may be done either in the midline or in the flanks and I think it's important that a physician should know the structures through which he's passing his needle before he enters the peritoneal cavity. And I thought we would look at it first of all in the flanks. Now, this represents here uh, the costal cartilage of the tenth rib and this point here indicating the upper edge of the iliac crest and I can just indicate it's rolled over in that fashion and then we'll bring down the peritoneum here then put the extra peritoneal fat here then indicate the fascia transversalis here then we go to the transversus abdominis muscle attached to the inner lip of the iliac crest then we'll put in the internal oblique and finally the external oblique now outside that is just a thin layer of areolar tissue which may be compared to the deep fascia and outside that again is the fascia of scarpa the membranous layer of superficial fascia and finally the fascia the fascia of camper the fatty layer of superficial fascia and then the skin so that the trochar comes through these various layers before it reaches uh, the peritoneal cavity the skin the superficial fascia, the two layers, the fascia covering the external oblique, the external oblique, the internal oblique, the transversus abdominis, the transversalis fascia, the extra peritoneal fat, and finally the peritoneum. The peritoneum is parietal peritoneum and is supplied by the same nerve as supplies the skin on the surface. The same nerve supplies the muscles between the skin and the peritoneum. Now we'll consider the paracentesis in the midline anteriorly. First of all, we'll put in the peritoneum. Then outside that, we'll indicate the position of the extra peritoneal fat. Then we'll put in the fascia transversalis. And then since it's in the midline, the oblique and transverse abdominis muscles are represented by the tough linear alba. And I think it's particularly important to indicate that this is relatively bloodless so that as the needle passes through you'll have a relatively bloodless field. Outside that is the uh, a little a small amount of areola tissue then the fascia of scarpa the membranous layer superficial fascia then the fatty layer of the superficial fascia and finally the skin. So we put our trocar through in that way and we see it goes through the skin the two layers of superficial fascia little areola tissue the relatively bloodless linear alba the fascia transversalis the extra peritoneal fat and finally the peritoneum I have referred several times to the importance of the inguinal ligament and now I'd like to show its attachments in detail here is the left denominate bone as seen from the lateral surface with the acetabulum and now I'm going to rotate it medially 
And now you're looking at the medial surface, and I want to make an enlarged drawing of this to show the anterior superior iliac spine and uh, the iliac crest in this way. Here's the iliac crest, anterior superior iliac spine, anterior inferior iliac spine, the iliopubic eminence, and forwards to the superior ramus of the pubis, and here I'll just indicate the pubic symphysis cut across. I'll just show the projection of the pubic tubercle in that way. Uh, just to orientate ourselves, we'll put in here the obturator foramen. Now the inguinal ligament is the rolled lower margin of the aponeurosis of the external oblique. It turns posteriorly and upwards, giving a rolled margin. Attached to this lower margin is the fascial lateral of the thigh, the deep fascia of the thigh. Now this ligament, this rolled lower margin, the inguinal ligament, is attached to the anterior superior iliac spine above and below to the pubic tubercle. And it passes down in this manner, and having reached the pubic tubercle, one would imagine that it would end there. But in fact, it goes on and curls round and passes on to the iliopectineal line. Now the iliopectineal line is running down and forwards to the pubic tubercle. And we see that this reflected part of the inguinal ligament, known as the lacuna ligament, is continued backwards along this iliopectineal line. In fact, it is continued into a thickening of the periosteum referred to as the pectineal ligament. So then we have the inguinal ligament attached to the anterior superior iliac spine. It's attached to the pubic tubercle. It is reflected backwards and curved to give a sharp margin there known as the lacuna ligament and then is continued onto the iliopectineal line as the pectineal ligament. Uh, clinicians sometimes refer to this as the pupa's ligament, as the cuna ligament, as Gimbernax ligament, and the pectineal ligament as Cooper's ligament. We have seen how the inguinal canal develops in both sexes as the result of the formation of the processus vaginalis. Now let us look at this in another view and see how the processes go through the various layers of the anterior abdominal wall. Here then is the peritoneal cavity and here is the processes. Outside the peritoneum we have the extraperitoneal fatty tissue and then outside that we have the fascia transversalis. Now, when this processus vaginalis reaches the fascia transversalis, it takes a sheath of fascia transversalis with it. And this becomes known as the internal spermatic fascia. This is a tubular sheath around the processus vaginalis, formed from the fascia transversalis. And it is this upper opening in the fascia transversalis, which will become the deep inguinal ring. Now out here, we have the transversus abdominis muscle. This muscle arises from the lateral third or less of the inguinal ligament, so it doesn't really come into this region. But if we put in the internal oblique muscle, we see that the processus vaginalis has had to pass through the internal oblique. And as it does so, it takes a sheath of fascia and muscle with it, and the muscle is known as the chromaster muscle. And so the combined connective tissue plus chromaster muscle is referred to as the chromostatic fascia. This muscle will be supplied by the genital femoral, genitofemoral nerve. Now when we come to the external oblique muscle, we find that the aponeurosis beyond that comes into the region where the processus vaginalis comes through. And so we see that that it takes with it a layer of fascia known as the external spermatic fascia. So the processus, as it has migrated out through the lower part of the anterior abdominal wall,
has passed through the fascia transversalis, taking with it the internal spermatic fascia. Because of the lateral attachment of the transversus abdominis, this does not come into the region where the processus goes through, so it does not collect a sheath from it. However, when the processus goes through the internal oblique, it takes the chromasteric fascia, and when it goes through the external oblique, it takes the external spermatic fascia. This region here, the opening in the aponeurosis of the external oblique, is known as the superficial inguinal ring. This opening in the fascia transversalis is known as the deep inguinal ring. And for the sake of completion, we put in here the inferior epigastric artery. We can see how uh, this processus is passing down lateral to the inferior epigastric artery. And so we see that the deep inguinal ring, to begin with, lies directly behind the superficial inguinal ring. And this is the situation that is present in the newborn child. As the child develops, so we find that the deep inguinal ring slides laterally. And to understand this, we should repeat this drawing. Here is the peritoneum coming down in this region here, but instead of giving rise to the full process of vaginalis, we assume that the processus has now shriveled up in its upper part, and I'll just show the remnants in this way. Then I'll show below the tunica vaginalis, which is the cavity of salomic epithelium in front of the testis. Now if we bring down the extraperitoneal fat in this region, and put in the inferior epigastric artery here, and then we bring uh, across the fascia transversalis, and we show it now as uh, a tubular structure coming down and surrounding this area and passing upwards. So there is our deep inguinal ring. And now we put in the uh, internal oblique, and the internal oblique is actually overlapping the front of the processus vaginalis and giving rise to the chromasteric fascia. And finally, we can put in the aponeurosis of the external oblique coming across and having the opening in the superficial inguinal ring. So the deep inguinal ring here is slowly moving laterally and the superficial inguinal ring is remaining in its medial position. Now this is a marvelous mechanism because it means that we have an oblique canal instead of having a direct anteroposterior canal. So that the anterior wall of the inguinal canal will be formed by the external oblique and this will be reinforced by the internal oblique immediately in front of the deep inguinal ring, which is just where you want it. The posterior wall of the inguinal canal is going to be formed by the fascia transversalis, but by this time the conjoint tendon has developed and is lying in this region behind the superficial inguinal ring. So where the anterior wall is weakest, here, there is a thickening of the posterior wall known as the conjoint tendon. Here we have a drawing of the fully formed inguinal canal with the deep inguinal ring being up here, which is an opening in the fascia transversalis. You notice that it is just to the lateral side of the inferior epigastric artery. Here is the external oblique aponeurosis, and here is the opening known as the superficial inguinal ring, and here is the external spermatic fascia derived from that opening. Notice now how the superficial inguinal ring is now in front of the conjoint tendon, whereas the deep inguinal ring has moved laterally and lies behind the internal oblique and the aponeurosis of the external oblique. Now, a hernia in this region is very common. And a hernia may be defined as a protrusion of the abdominal contents beyond the normal confines of the abdominal wall.
An indirect inguinal hernia is really a hernia which occurs through a preformed sac. In other words, the peritoneum, the processus, has persisted and either in its complete course or in part of its course so that a structure lying within the abdominal cavity can come down this processus and enter the inguinal canal through the deep inguinal ring. You notice that for this to take place it must occur lateral to the inferior epigastric artery. And depending how long this processus or hernial sac in fact is will depend how far the abdominal contents will descend through the inguinal canal. Now that is an indirect inguinal hernia. It is indirect because it does not come directly out. It has to go along the canal before emerging from the superficial inguinal ring. If the processus is complete, in other words, the tunica vaginalis is connected to the processus and connected up into the peritoneal cavity, it is quite possible for the abdominal contents, coils of bowel, to pass down through the superficial inguinal ring and out into the scrotum. You can see how, by gentle massage, it's possible to push up the contents of the hernia and push it up into the abdominal cavity, and then by putting a finger over the deep inguinal ring, it is possible to control that indirect inguinal hernia. And then when the patient strains down, then by removing the finger, then the abdominal contents will pass down this inguinal canal. Now that is an indirect inguinal hernia, and this occurs in very commonly in children and young men, and it's 20 times more common in men than in women. The direct inguinal hernia is an attempt of the abdominal contents to pass out directly through the superficial inguinal ring. In other words, it occurs in this region. This occurs in elderly men uh, with weak abdominal muscles, often suffering from enlarged prostate or chronic bronchitis, where there's an increased intra-abdominal pressure. And what happens here is that the conjoint tendon merely bulges forwards uh, in this direction, downwards. It never goes down into the scrotum. So here we have an indirect inguinal hernia coming down here and a direct inguinal hernia which comes this way. On clinical examination, the indirect inguinal hernia comes down lateral to the inferior gastric artery, whereas clearly a direct hernia is coming forward medial to the inferior epigastric artery. I think we should now look at the anterior wall of the inguinal canal from in front. Now what I will do here is put the anterior superior iliac spine, the anterior inferior iliac spine, the iliopubic eminence, passing forward the superior ramus of the pubis and the pubic tubercle, and the symphysis pubis. And then we'll put in here the inguinal ligament passing downwards from the anterior superior iliac spine down as far as the pubic tubercle. Now all this area up here will be filled in with the aponeurosis of the external oblique and that's coming down and then in this region down in the corner here we can put in this triangular interval in the aponeurosis of the external oblique, the superficial inguinal ring. So the the external oblique aponeurosis comes down in this way. In the midline, we have our linear alba going up here. So here's the aponeurosis of the external oblique. Now, as the spermatic cord in the male and the round ligament of the uterus in the female emerges through this superficial inguinal ring, it will take with it the external spermatic fascia. And what I'm going to do is rub out this area here and bring down the external spermatic fascia and cut it across. So this is the external spermatic fascia derived from the edges of the superficial inguinal ring. Now, if we continue down the spermatic cord, we can show coming out here the cremasteric fascia covering the spermatic cord derived from the internal oblique of the abdomen. And then if we go on still further, we can show another tubular extension of the fascia transversalis around the spermatic cord. And finally, we can bring out the vas deferens and the artery 
to the vas and put in here the testis uh, with the epididymis behind, just protruding up from behind. And this is how you would ex expect to see the spermatic cord with its coverings when you expose them from the front. Bearing in mind that this opening here, the opening in the external oblique aponeurosis is known as the superficial inguinal ring and this is the external spermatic pressure derived from the margins of that ring. We have described the inguinal canal and we have explained the difference between an indirect inguinal hernia and a direct inguinal hernia. Now let us just put on this diagram the positions of the pubic tubercles here and here and indicate the position of an indirect inguinal hernia emerging from the superficial inguinal ring that is above and medial to the pubic tubercle. Now another common hernia in this region is a femoral hernia and this comes out below and lateral to the pubic tubercle. Now to understand a femoral hernia we must consider the anatomy of the femoral sheath. To understand the femoral sheath we should look at a sagittal section through the abdominal cavity and consider the fascial lining of that cavity. Remember we said we had diaphragmatic fascia above, fascia transversalis lining the anterior abdominal wall coming down into the pelvis and then on the posterior abdominal wall we have the fascia iliaca and the fascia over the quadratus lumborum. Now the blood vessels uh, in, develop inside the abdominal cavity within this fascial lining. So if I just indicate a blood vessel coming down here, say the external iliac artery, you realize it's inside the sheath. Whereas the nerves descending into the leg develop outside uh, the fascial sheath. So that as these vessels, and when I say vessels, I mean the external iliac artery, vein and lymphatics, pass down into the developing leg, they have to take a sheath with them. And so we see that this area here will come out into the thigh as a sheath with a compartment for the lymphatics, a compartment for the artery and a compartment for the vein. The nerve on the other hand is lateral to the sheath and will have nothing whatever to do with the sheath. Now in a separate drawing I'm going to uh, show again the anterior superior iliac spine, the anterior inferior iliac spine, the iliopubic eminence, the superior ramus of the pubis and the pubic tubercle and the symphysis pubis and I'm going to put in again the inguinal ligament and indicate its reflection laterally onto the pectineal line as the lacunar ligament and then becomes the pectineal ligament. Now we can see here the region of the superior ramus the pubis is where we have the origin of the pectineus muscle which is coming down in this manner into the thigh and we can show its cut edge there and lateral to that we can show a mass of muscle here the iliopsoas, which is coming out under the inguinal ligament and passing downwards into the thigh and again we'll show it cut off in this manner. Now the femoral sheath which is this fascial projection from the abdominal cavity occupies this area here and in this sheath there will be a medial compartment which is the femoral canal and contains the lymphatics, the intermediate compartment which contains the femoral vein and a lateral compartment there which contains the femoral artery. Now way lateral to this is the junction, the groove between the iliosis and there will be the femoral nerve coming out. So that if we were to look at this femoral sheath as it's coming down into the thigh, we can see that it is a prolongation about one and a half inches long and uh, it contains the femoral artery laterally, the femoral vein in the intermediate compartment and this separate compartment medially that is lying up against the lacunar ligament is known as the femoral canal. Now the upper end of the femoral canal is referred to as the femoral ring. This femoral canal is about three quarters of an inch long and it is open below and as I've mentioned it contains the lymphatics coming up from the inguinal lymph nodes as they go up into the abdominal cavity.
Now, if a hernia should in this region, it will, the hernial sac will come down through this femoral ring, down the canal, and then will expand out in the thigh, uh, deep to the saphenous opening. A femoral hernia is much more common in women, and it's thought the reason for this is their pelvis is wider, their femoral sheath is wider, their femoral canal is wider, and they're more subject to increase intra-abdominal pressure, especially after multiple pregnancies. So that the femoral ring and the femoral canal are very important structures in relation to the development of a femoral hernia. And if we consider the relations of this femoral ring, you can see that anteriorly we have the inguinal ligament, medially we have the lacuna ligament, posteriorly we have the pectineal ligament and the pectineus, and laterally we have the femoral vein. So that if one wanted to enlarge this femoral ring to reduce a femoral hernia, it would be difficult to do it by making an incision through the inguinal ligament, it would be difficult to cut the lacuna ligament because there may be an abnormal branch of the obturator artery behind it, and it will be difficult to cut inferiorly and behind because of uh, the position of the pectineus and the superior ramus of the pubis. And laterally, it will be difficult because of the presence of the femoral vein. A femoral hernia is very likely to become strangulated because of the narrow neck, and it is a dangerous disease. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.